0: Ecclesiastes has long been viewed as the great existential work of the Hebrew Bible, containing the famous cry, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. As part of a search for enduring meaning, it questions the nature of work, mortality, happiness, justice, goodness, and life itself. Abounding with careful observations, disappointments, and insights, Ecclesiastes is one of the richest and most complex books in all of Tanakh. Join us as we speak with Erica Brown whose commentary offers a fresh and hopeful look at this ancient book as she synthesizes rabbinic commentary with modern scholarship, fine art, and poetry. You're listening to New Books and Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Dr. Erica Brown is the Vice Provost for Values and Leadership at Yeshiva University and the founding director of its Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs-Herenstein Center for Values and Leadership. Erica, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies.
1: Thank you. It's lovely to be here with you.
0: So, Erica, let's begin by having you tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to write a book on ecclesiastes.
1: Yeah, I uh, I'm currently serve as the vice provost for values and leadership at Yeshiva University. And I run a center to promulgate the teachings of Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, the Sachs-Herenstein Center at Yeshiva University. Rabbi Sachs was one of my Teachers, I lived in England, and I had the gift of having him as a master's thesis advisor, and um, and so it's it's an honor really to and a privilege to be able to teach his teachings and um, and mentor students to follow in his uh, his footsteps. Uh, not that not that he's replaceable. Um, I started. I I have done two other books in that series. It's a series on the Hebrew Bible put out by magid publishers they're part of they're an imprint of koren from jerusalem and they've published i think this is my eighth book with them and they have a a series uh it's a series trying to cover all the biblical books i did the book of jonah and that was a fantastic book because he's such a complicated and psychologically intriguing character. I love the fact that the book is canonized that we say, Oh, you have your doubts. You want to run away from responsibility. The prophetic voice is not for you. There's a place for you here. Um, That voice is important and allowing others to, to understand allowing readers to understand that there are call texts all over the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and and every response is not the same. I always say there's the silent yes of just going forth the way that Abraham did. There's the articulated yes of Hineni. I am fully present. And and the answer is yes. And I think that's the most desirable because it reflects the most intention and thoughtfulness and and. Um, and an active articulation that one is ready to make this kind of covenantal commitment. And then, of course, there's the Moses and Jeremiah no. Uh, that's the articulated no. And then there's Jonah, which is just the silent no. Just, you know, you run in the opposite direction. And I think we all have moments in our lives where we find ourselves in all of those sort of in all of those categories of agreeing to things we we don't want to do and, um, you know, being convinced or sometimes saying yes when we should have said no. So I, I I did Jonah and it was a lot of fun to research. And at the time they had asked me if I wanted to do Jonah or the book of Esther, Esther seemed a little bit daunting. I wrote my dissertation on a 16th century commentary of the book of Esther. So it should have been the natural yes for me. Uh, and at the same time, I guess, because of my research, I knew, what a serious exegetical history it had. And I wasn't quite sure, you know, Jonah's nice, four chapters, very short, great story. Uh, So I I did that. And about two weeks when I was done, uh, when I was done with that and the book had come out, Corinne asked me if I wanted to do Esther. And I worked on Esther, which is a really, was a really big undertaking. And when I finished, Michael, I said, I will never write a book this long again and then I, did it. <laughs> then I did it. And, and, and actually I had contacted Cohen because I was working on a book that I had not yet published on song of songs and it was very creative, very literary. And I just wasn't sure where it was going. And I was sort of frustrated about it. And I called Coran, uh, my friends at Coran. And I said, do you have any other books in that series? And they said, we have Proverbs and we have Ecclesiastes. I'm like, Kohelet, at Ecclesiastes. That's just my favorite of all time. So I'll definitely do that. So writing on that during COVID was a really interesting experience. As a lot of the themes, uh, questioning our mortality, aging, disease, um, money, and work. These were all themes uh, even during COVID. You know, what's what's the purpose of work? How how is work revolutionized as a result of ways in which we began to disconnect from the workplace uh, physically and mentally. So I think on some level, though, it made a terrible situation internally harder, so doing a lot of thinking in the space, I think it also gave me a lot of clarity on issues that were the issues of the day. Ecclesiastes
0: is not an easy book to understand. What were some of your biggest challenges in writing
1: about it? Uh, fantastic question. Um in part the repetition uh some of the themes come up again and again you know how how many times can you say there's nothing new under the sun or um you know or all is vanity all the variations of that uh or even the book is punctuated by statements about happiness you know about sort of seeking you know transient happiness and and food and, and in, uh, in, in, in certain kinds of relationships. Um, so I, but I actually came to, I think a good place around the repetition. I think the repetition in some way mirrors our own human struggle of going back to the same sorts of questions again and again, and sometimes getting more clarity and sometimes pedaling backwards. You know, we, we face some kind of I don't corruption in society, and we ask one kind of question about justice, and then when injustice happens to us, we may ask that with greater greater vehemence um, and indignation. So I think I think it is a very natural thing when someone says, when someone asks a question, when a five year old asks a question about death. It's very different than when a 35 year old asks a question about death, or when an 85 year old, and they might be the same question. You know, when uh, my my second son, uh, my fir- my first son, my second child when he was four, he really loved my husband's slippers. And he said, when you die, can I have your slippers, right? So, you know, this is, <laughs> at that age, he was sort of thinking, he was just learning about death. That's very different than when someone has a chronic illness that's terminal and begins to ask questions about legacy. So I think, I think repetition, the repetition was really a function of the sort of review of existential questions that you have. And you have those lots of times. Erica, do you have a favorite passage or two from Ecclesiastes you could share with us? Yeah. I mean, I could go to the sort of standards, which is the time poem. You know, there's a season for everything. Um That was fun to write on, Um, but I sort of, I, I, and, and, and I think, I mean, there were, there were so many places, Tova Shnaim and Echad, you know, two are better than one, and whether that was utilitarian, because, you know, if one falls, you can pick the other one up and and one warms the other in the bed. um, And you can understand that on lots of levels, but I, 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 you know, whether that's utilitarian or whether that's really a statement of how you negotiate a human condition which which tends to loneliness, uh, or tends to narcissism. You know, what does it mean to invite others into your life? I, I would say that um, you know something I've taught, and I it really helped guide me personally uh, is the fly in the ointment statement, in chapter ten. I, I you know um, that uh, uh, that expression, the fly in the ointment is sort of paralyzes us, right? You say, oh, here's something beautiful, this perfumed ointment that was very expensive, and now there's a dead fly in it. And then you say, well, it's a dead fly, ruins the ointment. And as an expression, something small really can minimize or diminish from the beauty of the entirety of something. And, um, you know, there's, there's some Talmudic writing on it. There's a lot of interesting medieval commentaries on what this verse means. And then one of the, uh, Michael V. Fox, uh, you know, said something very profound. He's a contemporary um, scholar of the Bible. And he said, you know, actually flies don't do anything to ointment. And you could just remove them. You know, it's, it's, it's a decision that you make whether or not you're going to throw everything out because something about it seems imperfect, and so for me, I think we live in a society where we know that we can not achieve perfection, but that doesn't stop us from holding up very unrealistic aspirations about what our bodies should look like, about what our, our daily lives should look like, about what our work should look like. And then something goes wrong and it's as if it ruins the ointment as opposed to saying, well, what would it look like to take a tweezer and take out the fly? When there's a fly buzzing, Michael- it doesn't matter how large the room is, it's or what's in the room, it's all you notice. And I think that's this really true for human nature. Are we hard, hardwired for happiness or are we kind of hardwired to to be critics? You know, and it's it, nothing is easier than being a critic. You know, you you hyper focus on something that goes wrong and then you lose total perspective. So I think that I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that verse and its implications for me as an educator and as a parent and as a spouse. Um, and as a human being who hears the the inner critic all all day long, yeah. Would you explain why
0: Ecclesiastes is traditionally read on the holiday of Sukkot or the Feast of Booths?
1: Yeah, I, I mean there are a lot of there are a lot of reasons that are are, are given around the reading of ritual texts at at particular seasons. Uh, one that I think. Uh, I, I, and that's actually how I end the book. Uh, that's the epilogue because, I, you know, it's 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 sort of not the place that you'd expect it to be read because. Sukkot is called in Jewish liturgy Zman Simchatenu. It's the time of our happiness. It's the time of the harvest, so it was a time of economic stability. One would hope Um, it was a time of 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 feasting. You know, imagine a pastoral painting. The sense of um, of working hard and enjoying the fruit of your labor on Sukkot. We take different uh, the Dalad Minim, the Arba Minim, different species. The palm, you know, the myrtle, the citron. We take those and we bring them together, and we sit in a sukkah, um, and we eat beautiful meals. Uh, but there's another aspect of Sukkot that I think Kohelet really does speak to, and that is when you sit in sukkah, a sukkah is, as we would say in Talmudic literature, a dirat arai, a temporary building. Um, it cannot feel permanent. It, 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 in, order to, in order to fulfill the commandment of this holiday, one needs to sit wholly as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, you know the totality of one's body under a roof that is not permanent. Uh, the walls can be permanent, but the roof can't be permanent. And so if you think about that as an amazing metaphor for the vulnerability and exposure that we experience in life, we're sort of, no matter what walls we built, and those could be walls of refuge and walls of protection, but they can also be walls that block others out right, that feel impermeable. And no matter how high we make those walls, and there is a height limit in Jewish law, the ceiling has to feel open. There's some aspect, the crevices, the, the what you can see through, and the, and the materials that you can make it out of, so that your experience of heaven, if you like, your experience of mm, what's transcendent in life, uh, has this Open and expansive, but also exposed sense, and so when you think about Kohelet, you're talking about the most raw and exposed uh, questions. It, you know, one of the things that's fascinating about the Book of Ecclesiastes is that there is there's no family really mentioned. He does mention inheritors, but he doesn't mention inheritors in the warm, fuzzy, who's going to inherit my legacy. It's more like, I don't, why should I work so hard? It could be a wise, a chacham or a sachal or a fool will inherit all this wealth. I won't even know how it's going to be spent. So what was the purpose of me doing all this work, this amelut, this this laboring in this life when someone might be irresponsible with my inheritance in in in, in a life that I can't see? And so that th- there's almost a depersonalization of, of others in the book. Uh, and I think, I think asking those very profound, very difficult questions is part of the Sukkot experience and really in some way emblematic of Judaism, which is celebrating the partnership that we have with God, with the divine, with the work that we do in this world to be productive, and then there's the sort of existential hovering cloud that we can never escape. It's always there. It's always there. And what does a marriage of those two things look like? Well, that looks like Sukkot. Erica, what would you say is the main message of Ecclesiastes? Right. So, I mean, that's a softball, because you could say, Heel Havala Kala It's all vanity. And that and that would that and that and that would be good. Put a punctuation, you know, put an exclamation point on that, um, and 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 call it a day. Um, so I I actually think I'm gonna take Robert Alter's translation of Hevel as breath, right? The uh, the idea that all is breath. All when you say all is vanity, that's a pejorative statement. That means that nothing is worthwhile. But when you say all is breath, what you mean is that so much, if not everything in this world, is transient. And then the question is, can you find transient value? I think what Kohelet, what Ecclesiastes did as the preacher, is he was seeking a world, he was seeking to understand if there's anything of real duration and endurance, and so he throws up in this thought, in these thought experiments he conducts, he throws up, well, could it be this? Could it be could it be money and 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 wealth and pleasure? Um, well, he says, like, I, I got pleasure out of my pleasure, but that's all I got out of my pleasure. He concludes in, in chapter two. So, you know, you you can't really resolve some of the larger issues. So. And, and and he's not advocating he's not advocating death right. He's he, there's nowhere where he's saying there's another world and the other world is brighter and better or death will resolve all of these things. It you know and I I do I do deal with the relationship between Ecclesiastes and Job because you really do have to go there. But whereas for Job, it's deeply personal, right? It's his suffering, it's his loss and his grief and his questioning of how God could do this to him. Ecclesiastes doesn't Ecclesiastes really have any of that, and engages in some of the questions, but not with that personal, uh, not with that personal suffering. In fact, you, you almost feel that this is a man relatively free of suffering. Right? He has all the wealth in the world; he can do anything with it. Um, and so I, I think it comes down to, if I could, so, if I could, use one sentence: um, take pleasure in the transient moments because those are the only moments you have. So make them worthwhile.
0: Before we say goodbye, would you tell us about any other projects or books you're working
1: on? Uh, oh, I'm always working on something. Um, I'm working on. Uh, pu- I, I do a weekly uh, a weekly podcast on the Torah portion of the week podcast video essay uh, called the Torah of Leadership. I'm putting those things together. It really has a leadership focus, uh, and I am uh, I am trying to. Uh, I'm I'm going back to Song of Songs. I've had uh, I've had uh, been working with someone on the editing of it to try to sort of shift and sift through some of the ideas and how to make it a little bit more accessible you know that was that was a, another sort of covid project that i began largely because i was spending so much time outdoors right and and if you remember that spring you just sort of noticed everything. I could say that was an amazing spring, but maybe every spring is just as amazing. But the intensity of that experience of being with nature and in many ways alone with nature made me really go back to this idea of the garden and, um, and why, would, why would the ultimate love take place in a garden, which of course brought me to the Garden of Eden and and the resonances between those two books. So that was, um, yeah, it was fun to be in that in that garden. And I hope to go back there sometime this year.
0: Erica, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the amazing book of Ecclesiastes. All the best.
1: Oh, thank you. I hope this wasn't vanity.
0: <laughs> Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network.